0: Exodus chapter 6, verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn, son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. They were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and uh, Merai, Levi, lived for 137 years. The sons of Gershon, by clans, were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Isha, Hebrom, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merai were Mahil, Maha, Mahli and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister uh, Jochebed and bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Ishar were Korath, um, Neph, Heg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Eliphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elizabeth. Daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nahdab and Abihu, uh, Eleazar and Ithlamar. The sons of Korath were Asir, Elkanah, and Apishvath. They were the sons of the Kophite clan. Eleazar, uh, Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Pethiel, and she bore him. Phinehas these were the clan these were the heads of the Levi families clan by clan it was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions they were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt the same Moses and Aaron now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt he said to him I am the Lord Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be like your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh.
1: Well, as Andy uh, read that tricky passage for us this morning, you might have been sat there, especially if you were here with us last week, thinking, haven't we heard this before? This pattern. God commands Moses to tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. Moses wobbles and doubts, and God promises to rescue. It's a very familiar pattern. In fact, if you look at chapter 5 and verse 23 down to chapter 6 and verse 9 that we looked at last week, it all sounds very familiar. So familiar, in fact, you might be thinking, I wonder if James has simply nabbed Matthew's notes and he's going to preach the same sermon as a test to see if anybody notices. Well, I'm not going to do that. There's a rhythm though, isn't there? in God's Word, and we've seen it so many times in our personal readings and in our ministry Sunday by Sunday, that God keeps repeating the messages we're too quick to forget. That is a pattern in God's Word. And those familiar things should remind us what we particularly need to remember because we are so prone to forget. But actually, there are some big differences between this week's and last week's passage, the most obvious of which was the long genealogy that Andy very uh, bravely worked through for us. And on first read, sticking a genealogy here in Exodus 6 doesn't seem to fit. If we were writing Exodus, we'd probably have included Moses's family tree when you first meet Moses in chapter 2. That would make sense. Here's Moses, here's his family tree, and now we're into story. By the time we get into chapter 6, we're in the rhythm of a narrative. And it seems to us, perhaps, that a long list of Hebrew names just doesn't really fit. The other big difference from last week is God's response to Moses' doubts. Last week, God responded to Moses' doubts and struggles personally. God addressed Moses as the one who had these struggles and said, Moses, the great solution to your doubts is to more firmly fix your eyes by faith on who I am, on my character and my unchanging covenant-keeping nature. And not only do you need to know that, but all the Israelites need to know that. So you need to go and tell them that message too. But when you get into chapter 7, God's response isn't primarily directed at Moses. I know God's speaking to Moses, but if you look at 7 verses 1 to 7, the emphasis is your doubts, Moses, are going to be addressed when you see me at work in Egypt. That's different. That's a different way of God addressing Moses' concern. But before we get into all of the detail, I want you to be sure how this whole section hangs together. Because as Brits, when we read a long list of Jewish names, we tend to go, well, that's really boring, I don't really understand who any of those people are. Skip that bit, then wonder why it's included. And i left thinking it's all a bit disjointed. That's not how God's Word is hanging together. And you need to see that in the big picture context. The first thing, of course, is that if you go back to verse 9, God's people have just rejected God's rescue. Which is mind-bogglingly stupid to say out loud. But as Matthew explained for us so helpfully last week, is a picture of how enslaved God's people were. You go back up to verse 6. God had promised that he would free them. He would redeem them. He would take them to be his own. He would be their God and he would take them all the way to that great land of triumph. That was what God offered to do. And what did God's people say? Verse nine, no, thank you. We're not interested. The very fact there's a verse 10 at all is a sign of the grace of God. God's people have literally just said, we're not interested. John Calvin puts verse 10 so helpfully like this. He says, it's of, extraordinary, it's of his extraordinary loving kindness that he ceases not to aid those who are willing to perish. And that's as true for us today as it was for the Israelites in Egypt If you're a Christian this morning, raise your hand if you think you heard more than a hundred gospel messages before you became a Christian. Okay, everybody just quickly, keep your hands up. Everybody have a quick look around the room. That's the majority of us. I did the maths this week. Um, If you exclude Bible camps and devotions at home, I was in services twice every Sunday and in a midweek youth group. For at least nine years before God saved me. Which means, on a minimum of 1,287 separate occasions, I heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and then said, No, thank you. I'm not interested. I am so thankful that God ceases not to aid those who are willing to perish that was me. That was all of us. And it sets the scene for what you're going to get into in the rest of this passage. It's all under the grace of God. God's people are saying, I don't want to be rescued. And God's saying, I'm going to rescue you anyway. <laughs> and you see something of how this whole section then hangs together. Because that rejection in verse 9 causes Moses to wobble in verse 12. He's got his worry factor again. He's thinking to himself, well, if I go to the people who are slaves and say God's going to rescue you and they don't listen, why is the slave owner who considers himself a God going to listen to me saying the same message? There's the wobble. So God, verse 13, speaks to Moses and Aaron. And then we get this family tree in verses all the way down to verse 25. Then verses 26 to 29, we're reminded that the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and then verse 30, Moses repeats his wobble from verse 12. Can you see how deliberately Moses, under the Holy Spirit, has structured this section of the narrative? And all of that's before chapter 7, verses 1 to 7. You get God answering Moses' repeated question from verse 30. So what does all of that mean? It means Moses has got this question of, I know that God has given me a calling to go and speak to Pharaoh, and my concern is that Pharaoh is never going to listen. I think the very deliberate way Moses has structured this passage is to show you that God's response to that wobble is in both the family tree and what God says in chapter 7 verses 1 to 7. Why does that matter? changes the way you look at the genealogy. Stops the genealogy just being this list of Hebrew names that we struggle to pronounce. And for the vast majority of the names, we don't have any other context to go on. They appear here in God's word and that's it. But if in that family tree, there is something of God's answer to Moses' doubt, then we need to dig deeper. And that's what I want to show you this morning. That family tree is the first part of God's answer to Moses' wobble. And it comes like this, I think, remember who you are. God says to Moses, remember who you are, not because you come from a perfect family. Absolutely none of us do. You've got Simeon's son, Shaul. He's the son of a Canaanite woman. And all the way through God's word, God commands his people not to marry people of other faiths, not different nations, different faiths. For as you unite your hearts in marriage, you become of one heart and you can't be of one heart in a marriage with somebody who doesn't love the Lord their God with all the heart and soul and mind and strength as you do. That's that consistent, repeated command. Then you've got Amram. He marries his father's sister, Jochebed. You get to God giving the Israelites, the law at Mount Sinai, and there is a very clear instruction not to marry your aunt. Moses doesn't come from a perfect family. None of us do. But his genealogy reminds us of at least three things. Number one, he came from a priestly family. In the Old Covenant, you didn't just decide to be a priest. You didn't look at the job adverts in LinkedIn and think, a uh, priest, that would probably work for me. You were born into the priesthood. And look at Moses' genealogy. His great-grandfather is Levi. We're going to get later in the book to that Mosaic law when it's all given to the people at Mount Sinai. And it's from Levi that all of the servants and helpers in the tabernacle and later the temple are going to to come. That was their job. It was to intercede on behalf of God's people before God. And rightly, we tend to think of that always happening on behalf of God's people to God. That's where it normally happens. But here we're reminded that that responsibility to intercede on behalf of God's people is also going to be shown before Pharaoh. Now, in years to come... Lots of people in Israel are going to question whether Moses had any authority to do any of this. They're going to be out in the desert whinging and complaining about everything that they could possibly imagine. And as Moses writes Exodus, after the great Exodus, he's going to remind himself and these now free people that he didn't volunteer for this job. God chose him. God ensured that he was born in the family that would have the responsibility to intercede on behalf of his people. And the second thing this genealogy reminds us of is that Moses is part of a passionate family. If you look at this family tree, it doesn't record all of the sons of Jacob. You get the first three. You get Reuben, uh, verse 15, you get Simeon, verse 16, you get Levi, and then it stops. There's no Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, the rest of the gang, nobody else gets a mention. And if you just focus on, on Levi's line, Moses only goes as far, verse 25, as Phineas. Why? Why does Moses start with Levi's generation and stop? at Phineas. Well, who are those two men? Levi and Simeon were the brothers who brought that violent act of revenge against the Shechemites when Dinah was raped. And then a number of generations later, the Jews are being seduced by the Moabites. They begin to worship the god Peor of the Midianites. And things have got so bad that in the just judgment of God, 24,000 Jews have been killed in a plague. Why did the plague stop? Phineas. Phineas's courage and his faithfulness to God's word. He saw an Israelite man continuing to act in disobedience with a Midianite woman, grabbed a spear and killed them both. Now, in our modern 21st century Western ears, that sounds gruesome and somewhat graphic. But Phineas was courageously obedient. He was gripped by the sense of the holiness of God and the wickedness of God's straying people, and he actively intervened in order to put an end to that great plague of God's judgment. So you look at the beginning and the end with with better examples and worse examples. Moses belongs to a passionate family that stood up and took action. And actually, we've already seen him do that. We saw him do it when the Egyptian slave master was beating the Hebrew slave. We saw him do it when he got to Midian and protected those sisters at the well. There was something in the nature of his family that gave him a God-given courage to stand up and take action. He was part of a passionate family. But thirdly, he was part of a promissory family. Now, we don't use the word promissory very much, but I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. The vast majority of us have or have had a mortgage. A mortgage is a promissory document. You sign it and you legally promise to repay your mortgage to the bank. That document contains the guarantee that you are going to do that thing. When you get to this genealogy, it's a reminder that Moses is part of a promissory family. When God made promises to Abraham about this slavery, hundreds of years before it took place, back in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. Remember what Andy was saying at the beginning of the service? God makes promises. God fulfills his promises. Trust every promise of God's word. God had promised Abraham you're going to be slaves for 400 years. Now it's happening. But then God made a promise to Abraham. In the fourth generation... Your descendants will come back here. Now go back to Moses' family tree. There's Levi. Levi was a free man who went into Egypt as one of Jacob's sons for the food. Here's Moses. That's his great grandson. Or in generational terms, it's his third generation of enslaved Israelites in Egypt. And God had promised to Abraham that the fourth generation would be brought back to the land of Israel. So here's Moses again. He's sometime later after the Exodus. He's recording the events of the Exodus. And all of his peers, his generation, are starting to whinge and complain. So much so, and it seems ridiculous to us, but we all have the same heart, so we know it's true. They say, I would much rather have been a slave in Egypt than about to die in the desert. That's all the stuff that's going on. What does Moses do? He says, remember who we are. We're the third generation. The promise of God's, fulf- the, the fulfillment of God's promise to bring the people back to Israel It's going to be fulfilled in our kids' generation. Don't stop believing. The end of the Exodus is nearly here. Hold on to the God who keeps his promises. You put all of those reasons together, and perhaps now we can see something of why the Spirit inspired Moses to include a genealogy at this point. All of this is to help us see, just as Moses understood all those years later, that hindsight proves history is God's story. That's what Moses had come to understand. Years later, as he looked back on his worrying and anxious self, who wasn't sure whether his faltering lips could possibly accomplish anything, he looks back and sees he is part of a passionate, prophetic family who are one of the promissory families of God. And all of that hindsight shows him that history is God's story. Part of the answer to his doubts and his wobbles was to remember Who he was. And do you know that you and I need to do exactly the same thing too? I don't mean by tracing a family tree. I don't mean by being sure that you can go back X number of generations to get yourself into the particular family of the leave. I don't mean any of that. I mean for you and me to remember who we are by God's grace. When Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, he said, Remember that that we Gentiles, all of us who are not Jews, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. For all of us, whether it took nine years of hearing the gospel and rejecting it, or whether by God's grace it didn't take you that long, before that point of conversion, that's all of us without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And in Christ Jesus now, our lives have been transformed. For if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Not perfectly, because everything that uh, Ian said is true. That fulfillment of seeing by faith, turning into by sight, that's yet to come. But the new creation has begun. And that means that we can live godly lives now. Through the knowledge of his will, the understanding of his spirit, you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Christian, remember who you are. Last week, Matthew reminded us that there are all sorts of circumstances in life when we say, why, Lord? Relationships or The longing for relationships, difficult circumstances at home or at work, the ongoing struggle for sin. In the face of all of those things, Moses' genealogy reminds us to remember who we are. New creations in Christ. Even though we were excluded and aliens to all of that by his grace, we now have his spirit at work within us so that we are being changed moment by moment, transformed in the image of his Son. Whom he loves. Now that's true. But how do you make it real? So often you can sit in a sermon and think, yep, agree with all of that. And then we go to the next thing. But we're still going to have the wobbles this week. There's still going to be stuff that is going to sideswipe us, distract us, discourage us. So how do you take that truth of remembering who you are and help it apply in the wobbles. Here's one idea. All of us are going to have a little bit more time over the next two weeks. Some of you, not loads. All of us, some. Why don't you grab 30 minutes of your extra time and flick through your Bible or search online for some of the most precious verses you know in the Bible that describe what it means to be a Christian. And write them down on a little piece of paper or card or something. And take time to memorize those verses. Take a bit of all of the time that we in the West are blessed to have over the course of Christmas to put some of God's word into your mind, such that when those worries come next time, and they will come, God's Word is planted in your soul for you to respond to that temptation and say, no, I know that if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new has come. I can say no to that temptation, not because I've got a track record of consistently saying no to it, but because God's telling me I am a new creation. And on it goes. Remember who you are. But there's a bigger thing that Moses needed to remember as well in chapter 7. Anxious that Pharaoh wouldn't listen to him, God says to Moses, Remember who I am. God says who I am. You see, Moses keeps failing for the same temptation that we believers always fall for. Which is to think that the thing that God's called us to do... We have to do on our own without him. And as soon as you've fallen for that lie, obedience is scary. As soon as you know, this is what God is calling me to do, and I've got to do it on my own, all you're going to focus on are your weaknesses. And on all of the things that you know are going to make it difficult to obey. And that's exactly what Moses is saying. End of chapter six. Since I speak with faltering lips or perhaps uncircumcised lips, lips that perhaps aren't set apart for doing this work, why would Pharaoh listen to me? You see, when Moses is the eye of his world, obedience is scary. But look at how God changes his perspective in chapter seven. If you just skip through verses one to seven, look at all of the eyes. Look at all the times that God refers to himself. The answer to Moses' concern is to stop thinking of himself at the center of his world. The I who will accomplish everything that God has called Moses to do is the God of heaven and earth. Moses isn't the one who's going to earn a position to be able to then take on Pharaoh and the, Egyptians, God, the Egyptian gods. It's not him who's going to do it. It's Yahweh. It's the God of heaven and earth. And if he's the one who's saying this is what's going to happen, then you can stack up as many other false gods in the universe as you like. There's only one true living God in all the heavens. And that's what God shows Moses. Firstly, three ways. Firstly, one in, verses 1 and 2, God will work through Moses. Moses isn't going to earn his standing. God says, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. What's being said here? It's not, Moses, I'm going to make you to be like me. That's not what he's saying. There is a massive ontological gap you can't change it. It's the nature of your being between being God, the creator, and creatures creatures. even. You can't span that gap. God isn't saying to Moses, I'm going to make you divine so that you can show Pharaoh who's boss. He's saying in the Egyptian psychology, in the way that the Egyptian culture worked, they looked at Pharaoh and considered him to be God. That was their view of Pharaoh. And God is saying, I am so going to work through your life, Moses, that Pharaoh himself and all of the other Egyptians are going to look at the power you exercise and know that is the sovereign judicial power of omnipotence. God is going to shatter the worldview of the Egyptians. That would humble Pharaoh. But not only that, secondly, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, we've got harden, repeat, all the way through our English Bibles. In the Hebrew Bible, there are three different verbs that we translate all the time as harden. And it, you understand that, you get something of the, the breadth of what is being described here. So sometimes it's a word that describes being made strong in the sense of resisting. Sometimes it's a Hebrew word that, being, that means being made heavy. So the heart is then slow to respond, And sometimes it means being severe and stubborn so that the heart refuses to hear. They're the three words in the Hebrew that Moses uses to describe what we consistently translate as hardening of the heart. And all three of them describe the spiritual response you shouldn't have when the God of heaven speaks. Hard hearts won't listen. They won't obey and will stubbornly go their own way. And that's what we see with Pharaoh. As we go through the course of the plagues in the new year, we're going to see that sometimes we see that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Sometimes it's recorded that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes Moses just records that Pharaoh's heart was hardened without telling us who exactly did it. But you put all of those references together, and what do you see? You see two things at the same time. You see that Pharaoh was personally responsible for the way that he responded to God's word. And you see that God himself was sovereignly overall in control of Pharaoh's heart. That's the big picture. We've already got loads of questions coming into your mind, haven't we, about well, what does that mean about personal responsibility? I know all that, but just what's Moses' point in Exodus? It's not to get into the nitty-gritty of all the theological and philosophical questions that we might have about how is it possible for God to be in control in such a way that people are still responsible. It's not that. Moses' massive idea at this point, as he tells the Jews what God told him, is that God is sovereign, period. That's the big takeaway. God is so sovereign that he can act in a situation where an entire nation considers their leader to be God in such a way that he will do exactly what the God of heaven and earth has said. For God is God. That's the big idea in Exodus, but what can we say What does the Bible teach us about how God's sovereignly in control and yet men and women and boys and girls are still responsible for their actions? Well, just within the book of Exodus for a minute, when we get into the plagues, we're gonna see that for the first five plagues, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Then you get to the sixth plague and for the first time we hear that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And you could look at that and think, well, in that case, I think what's going on is Pharaoh was stubbornly rejecting God and God, after that, and in response to it, he judges Pharaoh because of his heart response. And in one level, that's true because God always justly judges sin. But Exodus tells us, more than that. Because you look in Exodus 7, here we are, we haven't even got to the first plague yet, and God has promised that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this isn't the first time we've seen it. If you go back to Exodus 4, before Moses had even come back to Egypt, God had promised, same thing as in chapter 7, that he would harden Pharaoh's heart So God is going to be at work in Pharaoh's heart to such an extent that everyone would see the ugliness of Pharaoh's stubbornness and opposition. And when the time came for the Israelites to be freed, everyone, Egyptian and Israelite alike, would know that it wasn't a voluntary choice from Pharaoh. He had been overpowered and overruled by the God's, of the Israelites. Now that raises all sorts of questions in our mind about God's control over mankind, and the Bible doesn't answer all of them. But perhaps some of the clearest answers that we get are in Romans 9. If you've got a Bible, do turn to Romans 9. It's one of those colossal chapters in God's Word in the way that Paul, under the Spirit, is helped to see some of the truth that God would have us know about this relationship between his sovereign control and our responsibility. So you get to verse 15 of Hebrews 9, and uh, Paul actually quotes from a little bit later in the book of Exodus to say, "I." this is God speaking to Moses, Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That is God's control. And if you follow Paul's argument, he then engages with what happens with Pharaoh and the way that God raised Pharaoh up to display his glory. In verse 18 he says, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now Paul knows what everybody's going to be thinking as soon as they read that. He spells it out in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will? Meaning, if God's the one who hardens, nobody can overcome the hardening power of God. So how is it possible for those who have been hardened to then be held accountable for their lives and their response to God? That's the question. This is the Holy Spirit answering that question. Verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? That's the bottom line. That's as far as God's word gives us the insight to go. Human beings can't dictate how God should act. He's the creator. We're the creatures. And he has every right under heaven to justly judge sinners who refuse to bow the knee to him. But in doing so, he will act in a way that is always perfect and right and true and brings him glory. Now Moses' day, he needed to remember who God is. He needed to remember that sovereign control of God that was so much bigger than just his faltering lips and his fear about what he might say. He would control the heart of the God, man, that the Egyptians considered Pharaoh to be. But there's a final thing that he tells Moses to remember too, and it's that God will reveal himself to the Egyptians. Back in Exodus, do you remember how Pharaoh responded the very first time that Moses and Aaron went to speak to him? Chapter 5 and verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And Matthew helped us see that's not just Pharaoh ex- explaining his ignorance about this particular God. That's Pharaoh saying, I stubbornly refuse to recognize the existence, the power, the authority of your God. Now look in chapter 7 and verse 5. God says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Now for some Egyptians, it would seem that would be a saving knowledge. There would be some who would see the plagues, who would have got to know the Israelites during the time of their enslavement, and they would come to trust the Israelites and follow them out of Egypt. But this is referring to all the Egyptians, and saying that every single one of them would know, not just, oh, that's, that's the God of the Israelites, but recognize the power and the authority of the God of heaven and earth. And it struck me in the prayer meeting this morning, sorry guys, I haven't got this text on the slides, just how similar is our hope that all people will know the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we live in a world, don't we, where... Certainly in our country, the vast majority of people don't profess to believe in the God of heaven and earth. We're all still reading the results of that national census and seeing that declining percentage of people who would say that they're Christians. And in our hearts, we know that that figure's always been inflated by people who would perhaps say they're Christians but not really understand what the gospel really means. But seeing those numbers reminds us afresh of the millions of people who don't just not know God in our country. They refuse to believe that he is God. When the Lord Jesus returns, not meek and mild, but in the power of his resplendent glory, Paul told the Philippians that he will be given a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... All the knees of those who have called him Lord will bow. That's not what he says. He says every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day when they saw the power and the judgment of God, every Egyptian would know. God is God. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the skies will be filled with the glory of the Lord, the trumpet will sound, and everyone will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question that matters is whether you do so willingly and with a joyful heart that has been won by the grace of God. Because if that's you, then you will enjoy that eternity that Ian was talking about for all time and enjoy the beauty of a new creation that is free from sin and enables us to worship God with all of our hearts. But if it's not you, you will still bow before you face the judgment of God. Please do not be unprepared for that day. Bow the knee willingly now to a God who is not only glorious and all powerful, but has shown his great love by sending his Son into the world, that as you trust in him, your sins would be forgiven, you would have eternal life, and you would be brought into a living relationship with the God of heaven and earth. Moses needed to remember who he was, and who God is. And we should end soon, brothers and sisters. We could go on a while. But um, let's just finish by not missing verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. For all of God's patience, as he's born with all of their mumblings and complainings, they've got it. They did what the Lord commanded them. They didn't sit there having theological, philosophical discussions about, well, I wonder how God's going to do that with Pharaoh. They're marveling that God is God. And he's called them to do something. And that's what we're going to do. Despite the fact, verse 7, that Moses is 80 and Aaron is 83. It's just brilliant. There are men and women in our church family that probably the majority of us are thinking of right now that exemplify this. They get to their octogenarian years and go, still going to serve Jesus until he calls me home or he returns. This is Moses and Aaron. Dm Moody, D.L. Moody captures verse 7 absolutely brilliantly. He said, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning he was nobody, And 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. Isn't that brilliant? That's what Moses has finally clocked. God's God. I'm a nobody. But I get to tell everybody about the somebody who can work through a nobody. And you get to do it whether you're 80 or 83 or older. Now I know there's a unique calling on Moses and Aaron's life. I get that. But God's word commands us all to serve him. And not just in the ways that feel comfortable. Not just in the ways that feel like they're right in the sweet spot of the gifts that we've been given. God calls all of us to serve him. He will enable all of us to do it and to do it in such a way that he gets all the glory but what is it this week that you know in your heart God is freshly commanding you to do because he's going to do it for the whole of your life you don't get to a point where you know it all life's sorted you can just coast until glory that doesn't happen Moses and Aaron at 80 and 83 Every single one of us can know that we are working for God's glory and kingdom. And we do so in the strength that he gives us.